Blessed are the humble and the vulnerable. Blessed are those who are self-forgetful. Those who are spiritually discontent. Those who are compassionate. Blessed are the simple. Blessed are the non-violent. The ones who suffer at the hands of someone else's violence. Happy are you. That's what Jesus said. But what was he doing? I think what he was doing was creating a new kind of person on the slope in Galilee. Surrounded as he was by the Romans and the soldiers, which is basically America on steroids, they lived out a narrative that was completely opposite of what Jesus was saying. The humble were not blessed. Neither were the vulnerable, nor were the poor, or the compassionate, or those who suffered the violence of others. They were not happy. But Jesus stepped into that environment that was just all messed up. And he started speaking in simple language. 75% of the words on the Sermon on the Mount are one syllable. This isn't rocket science. But the stuff that he says there is jarring. It's completely opposite what you see out there. And because you live in America, you breathe it in yourself. And before you know it, you start having the same values that the rest of the people have. So if you let it, the Sermon on the Mount will continue to, to poke you and frustrate you, sometimes make you angry all your life. I don't think you'll ever be in a position where this stuff is easy. We will always have to work on this, even if it comes from our insides, because we live in a culture that is completely the opposite. They will never reward us for being these things. They say we're irrelevant, the church, I mean. 75% of the people say I could be good without being religious. Only about 16, 17% of all people in America right now say that Christian leaders have anything of relevance to say to matters of justice and politics. They say we're irrelevant, and maybe we are. And if we are, it's because we're trying to be relevant so much. Isn't it an odd thing that the more we chase relevance, the more irrelevant we become? Because anytime you chase a culture, you're no longer leading it. And the way to lead a culture church is not to find out what the hottest trend is and then to get on it. Because the goal here is to be relevant, not popular. They're not the same thing. And what Jesus was trying to do was to create a community that was relevant to the world. And the only way that we can be relevant to the world is to continue to be something that the world needs, even if it isn't popular. We have to be what the world still needs. So Jesus says, if you do these things, if you live humble, 
vulnerable, hungry, compassionate, simple lives. You will be salt and light. Salt and light are not popular, but they are relevant in any age. So what Jesus is trying to do is to create a body of people that is intensely relevant to our day by living a resistance to the popular culture. Probably no area where this is harder to grasp than this one, blessed are the peacemakers. And I'm asking myself right now, what would happen What would happen in a culture like ours where words turn to anger, turn to violence, turn to destruction in seconds? What would happen if we could release an army of people who were making peace? Wow, what a picture that would be. But it would be completely contrary to everything that we see right now around us. It's, it's, it's totally the other narrative. When I was, uh, when I was a, a kid, uh, one of the jokes that we used to tell was about the guy that goes into the bank. Now, because I don't tell jokes well, you'll have to laugh at the right time. Um, and he, he wants to cash a check. He goes to the first cashier and he says, I need to cash this check. And she looks and says, you'll have to sign the back or I can't cash it. He says, just cash the check. She says, not until you sign it. He slams the check away from her and moves down to the next teller and says, I want to cash this check. She looks and says, I'm sorry, you'll have to sign the back of it. He says, what's the matter with you people? Cash the stupid check. And she says, not until you sign the back of it, you have to endorse it. He grabbed the check and went to the third teller. And this one was a linebacker for the Detroit Lions. He's, he's a teller because it's September and his season's over. And... <laughs> But he's a big guy. And the, the teller, the man, looked at him and said, you'll need to sign the check. And the man started on his rant. He says, I am not signing a stupid, that's as far as he got. And the linebacker reached over the counter and he grabbed the man, turned him upside down and slammed his head on the counter about four times. And then looked at him and said, now sign the stupid check. And with a quivering hand, the man signed the check and he cashed it. And he went walking out the door past the first teller. And she said in quiet tones, excuse me, sir, did you get your check cashed? He said, yes, ma'am. That fella down there explained it to me really good. (laughs) Now here's... Now, here's why that is such a picture of our culture. It runs, our culture runs on the assumption that you try to explain something for as long as you can, but then there's a moment when you don't have to take it anymore. And that's the moment where you reach over the counter and you slam their head on it 
And you do things with violence that only violence can do. It runs on the assumption that the world is governed with a sense of justice. And that when someone commits an act of injustice, screaming at an innocent teller, there must be some penalty to pay. So you find out what he did, and you return the favor in kind, and you knock some sense into his head. There's only one problem with that, just one. It doesn't work. If it did, Jesus would have told you to do it. Jesus ain't nice. He's smart. Leave open the possibility that Jesus knows something that you don't know about enemies. And that if by some far chance you could ever get yourself to do those things that Jesus knows about your enemies, you would actually like it more. Leave open that possibility. Because right now, our whole narrative is completely different. If someone is shouting at you, you shout louder at them. If somebody throws at your batter, you wail the next inning, and you throw at theirs. It is tit for tat, the entire culture. And the idea is, once we have paid somebody back for the violation of justice, then we'll be even. But have you noticed? Nobody keeps the same score. So the more you do it, it just escalates. And it gets worse until people just live apart. It doesn't work. If it's vengeance that you want, then go for it. But after you're through with that adolescent thing of vengeance, and you decide to want things in this world that are larger than vengeance, you have to take the teaching of Jesus seriously. He knows something we don't know. And we have to learn how to do it. Are you in? Uh, yeah? Thanks, all three of you. We'll get started. The rest of you, back to Facebook. <laughs> the word uh, shalom is often used to describe peace. What Jesus was literally saying here was, blessed are those who bring shalom. Blessed are those who cause shalom. Blessed are those who practice shalom. And shalom is a complex Word. We often translate it peace, but so much is lost in that translation. Peace is certainly part of what shalom is, but shalom is a sense in the Old Testament of a well-ordered life. 
in a culture or a community where people are living in shalom, the relationships with each other are open and they're authentic and they're transparent. And each person in the community lives for the sake of other people in the community. So that when we act and we react in a culture of shalom, we are always acting in a way that benefits the entire community. This is the Old Testament vision of justice. So when you hear people today talk about getting justice, you know that it isn't really that justice that you're hearing about. In, in the biblical version of justice or shalom, it's the sense in which what is done benefits the integrity of every person in the relationship. It's a largely relational concept. It is not an ethical one. So there's not this abstract idea of what justice and goodness looks like and when somebody violates that, we have to bring them to justice. There is a sense in which peacemakers step into conflict and they ask themselves, what behavior, what response benefits everyone involved, even the offender? And when they find some settlement, some agreement that brings the community together, and starts to change the person who offended, there is shalom. So I'm thinking of uh, Romans 14, 17. Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I put him on a triangle. <laughs> Because I think that those three virtues are something of a picture of what Jesus is asking us to bring into conflict in our classes and in our dorms and in our homes and places where we work. When he says to us, blessed are those who bring shalom, he is saying in effect, blessed are those who practice righteousness, peace, and joy. If we bring one of these and not the others, we do not have peace. I'll say that in slow motion. If we enforce righteousness, but the people that we enforce it on are not joyful in the process, that ain't peace. That's called the Taliban. That's called legalism. You force people to act a certain way, but it is bereft of joy. And they're not happy about it. Anytime we go into a situation where there's conflict and we try to bring compromise, but we have not reached righteousness, we do not have peace. You simply have compromise. So what Jesus is asking us to do is to bring this wonderful blend of these three things into every situation where we live. Now, how do we do it? Well, I read through the Sermon on the Mount through the eyes of a peacemaker. And what I learned is that so much of my narrative 
has been shaped in the past by the third teller. Someone who tries to explain for a while and then when we reach an impasse, reaches over and just bangs his head a few times until he gets it. That's the narrative that I grew up believing and it is reinforced everywhere that I turn. So obviously, when I come to verses like Matthew 5, 41 and 42, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love your friends, but you hate your enemies, uh, how are you any different from your enemies? Well, that one was way out of reach. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn it. (laughs) And immediately I think, what if he hits that one? Do we get to, he doesn't say anything. And Jesus said, if anyone is angry with his brother or sister without a cause, and I grab it. I say, there it is, there it is, without a cause. Oh, I got a cause. But then I read the earliest manuscripts and the phrase without a clause does not occur. No, no, that was added later when the church didn't know what to do with the teaching. What he literally said to us was, if any one of us is angry with another one of our brothers or sisters, we are headed for judgment. There's no cause phrase in there. So what I created was a pyramid of ways to bring peace. It starts at the base with a quiet and a peaceful spirit. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Sometimes, church, we cannot bring peace because we are the storm. The problem is in us. It's not out there. There is unfinished business. There's a list of unstated expectations. There is a tendency to try and manipulate and control. There's a growing frustration when other people do not act like we want them to act. And our spirit gets poisoned. And so every relationship, every church, every conversation, every issue we enter, we bring the bile with us into the situation. And we cannot make peace when we don't have peace. You can't bring what you don't have. So it starts with becoming peaceful, quiet people. It's helped me to start examining my, uh, the habits in my personal life. And you may have to do the same thing because you may be involved in things right now and you don't even know it if you're not looking for it, but you may be involved in habits that keep reinforcing the third teller. Some of you are going to have to change where you get your news. Some of you will have to change the movies that you watch because all of the movies, the action movies, end in the way of the third teller. 
there was a gross injustice, and finally Jack Reacher just reached over and grabbed the dude and slammed him on the counter. And the end of the movie... And you may roll your eyes and say, oh, that was a fun and entertaining movie. And I don't really believe how that's how things work. But if you watch them again and again and again, listen to me closely, you are not intelligent enough or independent enough to resist that urge. You may have to change the blogs that you read. You may have to, I've had to get out of subscriptions that I had. These are just news periodicals. But it occurred to me one day, this isn't even news, man. This is propaganda. And my problem is not so much the position that they're taking one side or the other. My problem is the bile and the poison, the, the, the absolute disgust that they have for other people. And I just don't believe, maybe you're better than me, I just don't believe I can continue to read that without resi and still resist it. So the first step is to examine the habits that you have in your life. Take a hard look at some of the things that you do again and again and ask yourself, what am I into that seems for the moment harmless, but it reinforces the narrative of the third teller? The second is a reconciling spirit. Jesus said, if you know that someone uh, is offended with you, pause. He does not say, if someone has offended you. He says, if you know that you have offended someone else, then leave your gift at the altar. This is the most sacred thing in the week. Stop it. Get up in the church and walk out and meet them in the atrium and settle the differences that you have. I'll say that again. Don't tell yourself it isn't your problem. Don't tell yourself we're just on a different page. Don't hide behind the line that say that's just going to make matters worse. Don't say they really need to come to me. <laughs> no, 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 man. You're looking for an out. Do you want to reach the second level? then it is find the people in your life with whom there are differences. Someone that you know may be offended at you. And you'll have to go to them, write them, call them, see them, and say something like this. Listen, I know you and me are on different sides on this issue. But this relationship with you is far too important to me to let this issue divide us. Relationships are more important than ideas. And you matter to me. So can we think about how each of us can maintain the integrity of our ideas and still be together? What can I do besides caving in to prove to you that I love you? Tell me what it is. I'll do it. Some of you will have to break the habit of having the last line. You've been watching so many movies that you think the way you settle arguments 
is let things mount and then finally you gush. And then after you gush, you walk off. Have you seen it? You just go, well, you have always been that way. (laughs) Dude, that makes for great movies. But you can't build relationships on a mic drop. Some of you will have to run into the conflict, not away from it. If you avoid conflict, you're not a peacemaker. You're afraid. But when you get in it, you will have to listen more than you talk. You will have to seek to understand more than you're trying to be understood. And you will have to give some things up. This is hard work. This matter of reconciling with people. But I sense right now in the room that there are some real conflicts going on. If we're going to bring peace, we have to make it first at home, church. A gracious spirit. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on a cheek, turn the other. If someone rips off your coat, stop him and give him your shirt. If someone says, I insist you go with me one mile, do another one. And he's speaking, he's speaking about a different kind of ethnic. Stanley Jones says, we've got this idea that the world functions on justice and if justice is ignored, justice must be served. But he says in the kingdom of God, the world functions on love. It functions on love. It says, what does the other person need? And it goes out of its way to bring it. Jesus says, you have heard, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you will be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. For if you only love your friends and you hate your enemies, how are you different from even your enemies. And when he says this, it occurs to me, church, that he is now breathing some thin air. I mean, this is a place very few people get at first. I don't think we can start here. I think we have to go through the lower stages. I think we have to build the disciplines and habits of a quiet, peaceful life. I think we have to take on some of our own enemies first and reconcile with them. And I think we have to learn a generosity towards other people. Then maybe then we will be in a position to do the unthinkable. So when a Coptic priest thanks and blesses Isis for beheading 20 Coptic Christians. Man, that's a rare altitude. 
when a group of Amish people on the east forgive the murderer who went into their schools and shot their children. The nation is shocked because the nation knows as violent as the world has become, that is the thing we miss. A couple years ago when a young man went into the church in Charleston, South Carolina and 15 minutes after the Bible study began, started unloading, killing nine people, African-Americans, in that small church. The trial was had, the verdict was given, and as is often the practice, they allowed members of the family, the nine slain victims, to come to the podium and address the convicted. One after the other, they voiced their anger, disgust, for not only what he had done, but for him. Nadine Collier, who lost her mother in that, got to the podium and she too had notes, script. And as she went to say them, she said, told Time Magazine, something else happened to me. She went off script and she looked at the killer and just said, I forgive you. And she didn't even know why she was saying it. She said, I forgive you. What you have taken from me is precious and can never be replaced. But if God can forgive you, then I can forgive you. I forgive you. And as time reported the story, it said, the nation kind of watched in a bated breath to see what was happening here. In the, in the darkest moment Possible. When everything is on the line, somebody said the gospel. <laughs> somebody said God can break in and change the heart of a person so that they have feelings and drives that they did not have before. And when God does this, we can forgive. Let me say it again. You probably can't start there. And you've probably beat yourself up trying to get there. So what you may have done is just sort of explain away all the hard sayings. What if you just let Jesus talk and say impossible things and just move them higher on the ladder and say to yourself, someday, someday I'll get there. But first, I have to practice the easier ones. When we talk about being a community of resistance, we talk about doing the unthinkable. In ways that preserves this city.